0: Hello! Welcome to the talented Mr. Ripley episode of Slate Money Goes to the Movies. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck, also of Axios. Hello, hello. And we are joined this week by Jared Holt. Jared, introduce yourself and tell us about like how you managed to persuade us to watch two movies this week. Because we're actually watching not just one, but two.
1: Uh, Hello, Emily. Hello, Felix. I am the former editor of Slate, uh, now back to discuss these movies. Um, I don't know if I persuaded you so much as my first movie choice was vetoed, and then we (laughs) sort of managed to sneak it back in. I say that with no animosity whatsoever, but I think they were sort of a good pairing. That said, since Talented Mr. Ripley was not my choice, although I enjoyed it very much, does one of you want to introduce it?
0: Talented Mr. Ripley just like Office Space, came out in 1999. This Annis Mirabilis of movies, all the best movies came out in 1999, even Toy Story 2. And it was one of those great sort of star power Miramax vehicles with all the hot actors in it. Jude Law and Kate Blanchett and Gwyneth Paltrow. And it was lots of expensive locations and Anthony Mengele, the director, and the P- Patricia Highsmith novel. And I think it was received reasonably well and it, you know, got the glamour. But the reason why I think, and I can't exactly remember how we managed to alight on this one, but I think the reason why we wanted to put this in the mix is that it has a very interesting take on class and money and and the relations between the money and the not moneyed. And it has a relatively, I would say, normal take on that, which is that the people with don't money want money, they envy the people who do have money. And if you're a complete psychopath, you will do anything to, to sort of get the money. Meanwhile, the moneyed people are kind of like blithe and unworried by anything and live in this kind of little bubble of privilege. I haven't read the book, but is that kind of, would you agree that's like the general sort of milieu that we find ourselves in?
2: I would agree about the talented Mr. Ripley. Tom Ripley is poor. He'd rather be, as he says, a fake somebody than a real nobody. And his mission in the movie is to become like a rich person, to... Like Dickie Greenleaf, the ultimate rich person played by Jude Law, this like amazing, charismatic, charming guy who has all the right clothes and the right hair, and Matt Damon wants to be just like that. And the only complication with your assessment, I'd say, would be the character played by Kate Blanchett, Marge, who at, at some point says she hates her money. She's like, you know how it is being rich. We Only the rich can really understand each other, and only the rich can really understand how horrid it is to be rich. So there is that little complicating factor in the mix.
0: Although she she doesn't even say it's hard to be rich, but she she she's like there's a kind of self loathing, sort of slightly sort of guilty like I didn't do anything to deserve this thing that she has because they're so you know, they're all like scions of the rich. With the exception of Dickie's dad, we don't meet anyone who's actually made money in this movie.
1: Right. They're all spending their parents' money to ends that are sort of obviously glamorous to watch, but uh, don't seem to be amounting to too much. Marge, played by Gwyneth Valtrow, is writing a book. Dickie, what is he doing exactly? He's into jazz. In the Patricia Heisman novel, he's a painter, and a really bad painter. Tom Ripley sort of looks at his works and, and kind of recoils of them. So yeah, I also thought the, the line from Kate Blanchett's character is so terrific, because she's basically saying, if you have money, you know, you're only comfortable around people who not only have it, but also sort of despise it a little the way I do. And that is, you know, just this very particular relationship to money that you can only have, obviously, if, first of all, you have a ton of it, and also if you're you're sort of privileged enough to regard it that way. Of course, the irony is she's talking to somebody who she thinks understands her completely, but doesn't have money. She's saying this to Tom Ripley, and in fact, um, is out to get as much money as he can. um, And so she's completely misunderstood since he's, you know, he's fooling them all.
0: Talented Mr. Ripley, coming up...
1: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life.
0: No purchase necessary. VTW, Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Is Tom Ripley's motive here for his crimes? Is it financial?
1: Well, and see, here's the thing I'd say, and it's really tedious, right, to compare a book to a movie. So this is, I promise, the last time I'm going to say it. I would say, you know, <laughs> one main difference is that I think in the book... First of all, he's just a much colder, uh, more calculating character, and he's already pretty calculating in the, in the movie. And I think his desire is indeed really about improving his status in life, financially and otherwise. The movie takes a, a sort of, you know, sub-sub-theme of the book, which is kind of the queer sub-theme, and elevates it, I would say, and turns the movie to some degree into more of a kind of... Um, love triangle between him and Dickie and Marge uh, than then perhaps it, it is in the book, certainly than it is in the book. Um And I would say, you know, we could talk about that a little, what what the movie is trying to say about how his identity tortures him in various ways and what is he on the run from and what is he trying to get to and who is he trying to get away from.
2: Yeah, let's talk about that more because I definitely didn't get the sense this was about money solely for Tom Ripley. It was more about inhabiting a life or becoming something or someone, like, taking his obsession with Dicky's everything and embodying it.
0: hmm
1: I think you're right, Emily. It's, but, you know, of course, that can only be activated through the money. And so, you know, in order for him to do it, he's got to be able to still go to the American Express office and get the checks that are meant for Dicky, right, and do the whole—I mean, there's, you know, there's no way around it. And then I think as time goes on, he gets better and better at acquiring the sort of the trappings of the money, right? And so you've got, you know, even when you look at the apartments he moves into, he moves into this apartment in Rome, and then Dicky's very suspicious friend Freddie, who's played so brilliantly by Philip Seymour Hoffman, comes by and sort of looks around the apartment. Uh, you know, Dicky's dead at this point. Tom has been occupying this apartment, and, and sort of looks askance at the furniture and says, you know, this is really it's so bourgeois.
0: Did this place come furnished? It doesn't look like Dickie. It's, uh, it's really
2: horrible, <laughs> isn't it? It's so, uh, bourgeois. Oh, that's a, uh, you should watch that. It's cute. Oh.
0: In fact, the only thing that looks like Dickie is you. Hardly. Hmm. You've done something to your hair. Is there something you'd like to say, Freddie? What? Do you have something you'd like to say? I think I'm saying it. Something's going on. And
1: then, you know, the next apartment he moves to in Venice he seems to have sort of got that hang of it a bit more. As people say throughout, you know, the movie, he's, he's a really quick study. He gets the signifiers pretty quickly, you know, at the beginning of the movie, he can't be counted on to mix a martini. By the end of the movie, he's shaking it with great expertise. Um, you know, there's that great scene at the beginning of the movie where he hasn't met them yet um, in Italy, but he's, he's arrived at the town that Dickie and Marge live in, and he's staring at them through binoculars, right? Um, and he's practicing his Italian. And he's practicing his Italian basically by saying like, "This is my face. This is Dicky's face. That is my." You know, I've getting the lines wrong, but it's sort of like this unbelievably creepy. Like, I'm about to embody this person. I'm about to learn how to speak Italian better than this American who speaks who speaks quite good Italian. It seems speaks it. Um, you know, he's he's just out to kind of like subsume him in every way.
0: And he and he's very open about this. The first time he meets, well, maybe it's the second time he meets Dicky, Dicky's like, "What's your talent?" He's like, "I." inhabit other people i can impersonate other people it seems to me that that's really what he you know that's his goal along. along and from the minute he literally steps off the boat and some random woman comes up to him and asks him his name and he's like dicky greenleaf which is such a weird thing for him to say um but it's also just him in that mode of like i want to inhabit this life and of all the names to pick, that's like that one one there's he gets very sort of like there's a lot of um coincidence and luck and fortune in this movie. But that very quick lie that he dashes off as he gets off the boat turns out to be incredibly fateful in a bunch of different ways and kind of like saves him inadvertently from being immediately find found out when he after he's after he's murdered Dickie.
1: Yeah, you're right. I mean, it seals his fate. It seals Dickie's fate. It sort of seals all of the characters' fates. And it seems like it's hard to tell. It seems very impulsive that he said that, right? It just sort of came out of um, his subconscious. I think it didn't feel premeditated to me that he decided to introduce himself as Dickie Greenleaf um, uh, upon disembarking.
2: And one thing that just occurred to me, and we can maybe talk about it, if we transition to talking about the other movie, which we haven't yet named. <laughs>
1: the What What is
0: what is the other movie, Emily?
2: Uh, it's called Fox and His Friends. It's a movie from the early 1970s um, Fassbinder movie. Did I say that right, guys? Fassbinder. Fassbinder. The point I'm trying to get at about Ripley is it's sort of an indictment of class and the way um, the wealthy see themselves that this man can so quickly become one of them. Do you know what I mean? Like in the Fox and Friends movie, it's very clear that this lower class guy doesn't measure up to whatever the standards of these so-called allegedly higher class people he starts hanging around with. Um, You know, he doesn't know how to eat soup. He puts bread in the soup in this other movie. Anyway, in Ripley, I mean, Matt Damon's character, Tom Ripley, he figures it all out pretty quick. Like, Initially, Freddie Miles is calling him out, but he gets it. He, he gets it fast.
0: And Freddie, like Philip Seymour Hoffman, actually, both Freddie and Dickie are relatively perspicacious about this, right? They both see the striver. They both see someone who's not in that class. Dicky has this wonderful line where he's like, I knew you're not from Princeton because you're too smart basically he's he's like i always called the, the the guys at princeton the cream of america rich and thick and that's what ripley lacks right is that kind of ability to not care about anything he's always he always cares and he kind of like for a psychopath kind of like wears his heart on his sleeve
1: yeah. And the movie version, certainly. Yeah. Which I think is important, right? Because you are sort of, you're rooting a little for Matt Damon. I mean, it's funny, I went back and looked at Anthony Lane's review of the movie at the time, and he said something like, this is bad will hunting. <laughs> <laughs> sort of Matt Damon is this character who, you know, obviously is is uh, creepy, um, and plays the creepiness very well against this kind of slightly weird wholesomeness, this sort of, you know, this ability to align himself with people. I mean, it's such a clever trick he does where upon arriving, he basically announces to Dickie, like, here are my skills by which eventually I will do you in. And in fact, it becomes a sort of bonding moment, you know, and he does this very creepy and effective imitation of Dickie's father, who of course has sent him over there to get Dickie back uh, from Italy to make him return to New York and to start a productive, prosperous life. Uh, anyway, so it's fun to watch him. Um, It's fun to watch the movie play.
0: In the movie, it really seems that Dickie Greenleaf murder in particular was not in any way premeditated, that it was a, a crime of passion that, you know, they've been dancing around this sort of unrequited love that Ripley has for Greenleaf for a while. And it all comes out in this big fight on the boat. And as, Dicky's dad ends up saying like Dickie has this violent streak to, streak to him and they wind up having this fight and um and Ripley winds up killing his you know the man he loves not because he wanted to steal his travelers checks you know but because there was this deep sort of passionate you know fight
1: yeah again okay I'm doing it I'm so sorry very different from the book the book um, the book this crime is certainly more premeditated. And, you know, just to give an example in the movie, so after he's killed Dickie, they're in the boat, right? They're off the coast of Italy. Um, and, and uh, you know, Ripley starts, sort of spoons him, right? They lie together, he and Dickie's corpse in the boat as it floats to someplace, presumably before he drops the body overboard, weighs it down, whatever. Uh, in the book... As best I recall, you know, immediately after he kills him, he starts kind of rifling through his pockets and just taking things. So he takes, you know, the wallet and he takes the lira and he takes jewelry and he it's a, it's a very different sort of crime. That's not to say that there isn't a strong undercurrent of attraction that he has for Dickie that you kind of sense in the book and there, you know, are all sorts of of other things going on there. But I do think it's, it's much more driven by hmm, what would it be like to effectively take over this person's life. Um, where I think in the movie, that idea maybe comes after the sort of the the more the crime of passion that takes place on the boat.
2: That's a very Hollywood change because they, they, want, they want people to come watch the movie and enjoy Matt Damon and half root for him, which was on my list of questions to ask you guys if you rooted for him. I didn't really, but I could see he's so likable even as a villain and that is just very Hollywood. I,
0: I wasn't rooting for him at all. I, I didn't find him likable in the slightest. And in, in fact, I didn't understand what it was that Dickie saw in him. I was much more on the side of uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, like basically saying, like, who is this guy and what is he bringing to the party? He, he just seems like this sycophant who's a leech who, like, just never goes away
2: yeah I think Dicky likes having people around who are really into him. That was my sense. Like he really sort of like gets off on that, and that's why he liked having Tom Ripley around. He likes having he liked having an admirer that he could kind of like lord it over a little bit and then eventually gets bored with him as he literally tells him on the boat, um, right. you're boring
1: <laughs> right. No, I think you're very right, Emily. Yeah, I mean, sycophants are boring, right? Yeah. yeah but I think, like, you know, he he likes having him around. He likes somebody who flatters his own sense of himself, Dickie, is an artist. I think, to your point, Emily, you know, uh, Tom is pretending to like jazz as much as Dickie does. Then Dickie gets to take him to a club in Naples and introduce him to that world.
2: Yeah, and I loved Philip Seymour Hoffman's character. Just...
0: Who fucking nails it, oh, right? Yeah. Who gets
2: everything right. Tommy, Tommy, Tommy. How's the peepin? I love that. <laughs> he was so good. Yeah, that's
1: a gr- that's a great line. <laughs> so that's peepin'? you know they're on they're on Dickie's boat, which he's named Bird, um, I guess after tra- uh, Charlie Parker. And um, you know it's him and Marge and uh, and Freddie and Dickie and Marge go um, you know below board to uh, have sex. And Tom Ripley is sort of watching them, and filmic Sumerhofen is watching Tom watching them and saying that thing. And yeah, he just seemed like this sort of. Acerbic, just sort of calling him out for this act that's so gauche and unappealing to be watching these people.
2: He sees right through him. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
0: Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, at my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that. But I'm safe and what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. The only sort of psychological error that Freddie makes is that he isn't in any way scared of Ripley, when of course he should be.
1: Yes, that's such a good point. That actually people, yes, they they don't realize they should be scared of him until it's too late. And actually, you know, and the the people who are scared of him then manage to kind of get away, but um, sort of through chance rather than through their own um, realizing in time.
2: Yeah, Gwyneth Paltrow's character, Marge, is scared of him by the end. And it does seem like he's about to do something quite terrible to her. He has some razor blade in his hand. I didn't really understand why he had the razor blade in his hand and cut himself, but... Um, she manages to squirrel out of that one.
1: She's discovered that he has Dickie's rings, which is very suspicious. Dickie would never be without his rings, so what does this mean? And yeah, and then he thinks he may have to kill her, but um, suddenly another friend arrives and he doesn't.
3: And that's the irony, Marge. I loved you. You may as well know, Marge, I loved you. I don't know, maybe it's
1: grotesque of me to say this now, so just write it on a piece of paper or something and put it in your purse
0: for a rainy day. Tom loves me Tom loves me Why do you have Dickie's rings? I told you, he gave them to me Why? When? I feel as if you haven't been listening to anything I've been saying to you I don't believe you I don't believe you It's all true
2: I don't believe a single word you've said You're shivering, Marge Look at you, Marge Can I hold you?
3: Let me hold you. Mom?
1: One thing I wanted to ask both of you was how you, how you felt about the end, and maybe not even the last scene, but the sort of penultimate scene, where once again Ripley has to make a decision about how he's going to continue with this lie, um, and somebody has to die of, of two characters, and he, he picks one of them. What did you both think?
0: Yeah, I I didn't like that one. <laughs> Again, as as, as I as, as someone who who hasn't read the book, I don't know how close or far it is from the book. But the it, the whole thing was very contrived. This idea that like suddenly you know Kate Blanchett shows up on this boat and she knows him as Dickie and he can't throw her overboard because she's got all of the aunts looking, and therefore he has to like kill the other guy to whom he has now transferred his his affections.
1: Right and who's his boyfriend effectively right like they are actually having a, you know a, an actualized realized gay relationship of some kind you know not we don't see it explicitly but we we know that they're lovers by this point um and they're traveling to Greece together yeah
0: and yeah and the the idea that the only way out for him at this point because of like the presence of the aunts or whatever is to murder his lover i'm like at that point he yeah not i don't know it felt it felt like a little bit of a overreaction, let's say.
2: I mean, once you go down the killing road, it's like, whatever. That's what, just what you I do guess now, you I guess you just have
1: to keep doing it. Yeah, <laughs> I guess you're right. I mean, the thing I kept wondering, though, about the the Meredith character, played by Kate Blanchett, is like, she seems like she's gonna be sort of recurring problem if he wants to continue living in this world. I mean, she'll just keep, she keeps showing up. And whenever she shows up, he has to suddenly do this dance between pretending to be Dicky and actually being Tom Ripley. So the boyfriend knows him as Tom Ripley. She knows him as Dickie. They cannot all meet on the boat or the whole thing will blow up.
0: But she's literally the only person on the planet, pretty much, with the exception of like a couple of cops in Rome who knows him as digging. All he needs to do to have a nice life from here on in is to avoid her. Or
1: or kill her. But basically he needs to avoid her, which may mean in in whatever the small circles of of late 1950s American expatriate life in Europe are, finding a new place to live and not sort of traveling the the Grand Circuit in quite the same way. Uh, Because she will pop up again.
2: It seems relatively easy in the 1950s to disappear into whatever identity you choose. I mean, Tom Ripley is able to just scratch out a picture and a passport. Or
0: He doesn't even need to change his identity, right? He gets to go back to being Tom Ripley because now he's getting an allowance from Greenleaf Senior, who, by the way, like, and this is, I wanted to ask Jared about this one. There's this scene where where Greenleaf senior like sends Marge out of the room and says there are certain things like only men can really talk about, and I wanted to ask like it is the unspoke is the unspoken reason why Tom winds up with that large chunk of Dickie's allowance connected to the fact that he had the rings. And there's this feeling that Greenleaf Senior reckons that those rings were given out of love and they had like a gay relationship going on and he's trying to like, you know, honor that.
1: It's it's so interesting you ask that because I uh, watched it with my partner, Felipe, and he immediately got that in a way that I didn't quite. He said, oh, I think one of the things that's going on here is indeed that there is an implication that the father knows that they had some sort of relationship that he does not want exposed. Dickie at this point, people assume, has committed suicide or... And that that is why he is now honoring, doing the strange thing, right, of transferring, <laughs> transferring a large portion of the money that would have gone to Dickie uh, to Tom instead. Uh, it's a, a nice icon for Tom, obviously. Yeah, I don't know. It felt like maybe there was that suggestion. And then there's also this idea that Dickie had, as you said before, this sort of violent past, um, had beaten up some fellow student at Princeton quite badly, that the father also doesn't want to come out. I did find that whole scene a little confusing because they found this private detective who, among other things, seems to have, um, you know, realized that Tom Ripley did not go to Princeton, which is how he had introduced himself to Dickie's parents. And as part of how he sort of got in with them and why they sent him on this mission in the first place, that I think he was like, there was a Tom Ripley who was a piano tuner at Princeton. So you would sort of think that if that had been related to Dickie's father, he might have been like, huh, hold on a second. I, why should I trust this person? And yet, they're going ahead with this arrangement whereby he ends up getting the money. And it's all very infuriating. And of course, the way that Marge, when Pelcher's character is treated in it is is so frustrating because she, she knows, she realizes that Tom did this. And you know, before that scene, I think they come in and the father says something to her like, well, you know, there, there's female intuition and then there are facts and it's like oh like <laughs> she's she's pieced it all together and she's furious
0: well she yeah well she kind of hasn't like this is also a bit annoying to me is the kind of she's pieced it together in a kind of hysterical hand-wavy way she hasn't pieced it together in a methodical like i can prove that you murdered my fiance kind of way and the jude law film that really came to mind when i was watching this was side effects the steven soderbergh film where jude law basically plays that marge character who realizes that you know he's had this relationship with a complete psychopath and no one believes him but he really goes out of his way to prove it and eventually he succeeds right and that film like i think it says a lot about the evolution of filmmaking over the past 20 years that film is so much more subtle and sophisticated in the sort of screenplay um talented mr ripley like there's never any doubt what's going on it's very like what you see is what you get side effects everything is like uncertain there's unreliable narrators all over the place there's like it's um you don't have that kind of omniscient camera telling you what to think there's been a big leap in general sort of cinematic sophistication between ripley and side effects
1: That's interesting. That actually leads me to something I wanted to ask both of you about. It's interesting watching this movie now, which I feel like people have talked about a lot in the last couple of years for two reasons. One, it sort of became a movie people really like to watch during the pandemic. I think like Vulture did a movie club around it. Kind of easy to see why, right? It's just like the lifestyle porn of it and getting to go to Italy when nobody could travel anywhere. But then of course, people keep talking about it right now in terms of all of the stories and movies and magazine articles that become movies about grifting. And so I'm I'm really curious how you both looked at it in that Context. Um, I mean, I, I think one interesting thing right now, at least, is somebody told me about a year ago something that Hollywood is really into stories about grifting right now, but not grifting with body counts. They want they want grifts that don't involve <laughs> murder. Um, I'm not sure if that's true or not, but but in any event, if you just turn on Netflix, obviously any night of the week, you see that all you you could watch grifting things from now until eternity. So anyway, just wanted to know what you both thought of the movie in that context.
0: Yeah, and and and. I think to answer that, I really need to go back to Fox and His Friends. And the real the by far the most interesting grifter in either of these movies is Eugen in in Fox and His Friends. And because there's always this, and, and Eugen, just to sort of bring people up to speed, is this um upper class, sophisticated gay man who enters into a relationship with a very lower-class, unsophisticated oaf, played by Fassbinder himself, um, and who who happens to have won the lottery and basically grifts all of um, Fox's half a million Deutschmarks out of him before discarding him, having wrung all of the cash out of him. And it's a particularly cruel and heartless grift, but one of the things that, is, is super interesting and a little bit like deliberately um, left unresolved in the movie is the, the degree to which it's, you know, premeditated and, and actually like, you know, grifter rather than just like what happened.
2: Well, I think that I was thinking about grifting, comparing the two movies because in the Fassbinder movie, it's a, it's a grift down. Um, Eugen is grifting down. He's taking this lower class person's money and that's all the money he's ever going to have. And it's, it's just cruel. And in Ripley and in like the Anna Delvey Netflix show, it's grifting up. It's like someone who has nothing is pretending to be just like rich people and conning them out of their money. And you kind of root for that because typically in these stories, the rich people are kind of dopes. They're what a, rich and thick. They're the cream of society, right? They're just, they're basically asking for it. <laughs> they haven't done anything in, to deserve their wealth anyway. So,
0: which is, which is, by the way, Fox, right? He is literally rich and thick. Like he's not rich because he was born rich, but he's rich the minute he wins the lottery. And, and in this incredible um act of cruelty Fassbinder makes him kind of stupid like normally when you when you see working class people in the movies there's like an ability and an often often like an innate intelligence there which is completely lacking from fox
1: yeah he's very naive i mean he's very knowing about Sort of one thing in particular, and that's kind of I'd say sex and and the sort of laws of cruising and desire and how sort of every everybody can be had basically. I think he says at one point, and he sort of gets those rules. But when it comes to everything else, right, he's he's very much out of his element. I think your point, Emily, is exactly. I mean, I, I I was thinking that as well. It's like in some ways, in Fox and his friends, the grift uh, is the system, right? Like what we're watching is sort of just what happens. Generally, that the you know the the poor get preyed upon by the rich, in this case, the preying upon is is right of an exceptional cruelty, you know and he's and he's doing it because his family's business, which I guess is a, a printing business or a book making anyway a printing printing business, is in a lot of trouble, and so suddenly, with fox's lottery winnings, they are able to stabilize the business. And they've set up this loan with him. And as they're signing it, you just know, oh, no, something is going to go terribly wrong here. And Fox is not going to get the better end of this deal. You know, one of the things that I think I think is so interesting about this movie is, like, you've got these romantic archetypes that are sort of um, mixed up a little here. So so Fox is sort of like the kept boy by the rich guy. But he's also the sugar daddy because he's supplying all the money. So they have this crazy relationship where, you know, Ugin is sort of, you know, saying, okay, now we're going to move into this apartment, and I'm going to buy all this sort of horrible, baroque, antique furniture, but you're paying for it. And, you know, the relationship is on the skids, so or they're not doing well, they need a vacation, so they're going to Morocco, and Fox is paying for it. Much to the horror of the travel agent, who sort of watches this unfold and, and thinks that, you know, all of the sort of, uh, the law of order has been disrupted, so... <laughs>
0: Let me ask you about the furniture, because I feel like everything that, you know, everything that is ever interesting about wealth always comes down to furniture.
1: I'm obsessed with the furniture.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So there are two ways to think about the way that Eugen fills this, like, beautiful mid-century brutalist apartment with, like, like, 17th-century furniture. And you're like, what the hell is he doing here? One is that it's all part of a premeditated grift. And he's buying it from his friend, the antiques dealer, and he fully expects and intends to sell it back to to the the same friend, the same antiques dealer at, you know, maybe a small loss, but it's a great way of laundering money. And the other one is that it's all part of the psychological intimidation of Fox. He's trying to place Fox in the most alien possible atmosphere to keep him completely on edge and never feel comfortable and never feel like he has real control over his life
2: i did not realize that that is crazy psychological manipulation via furniture is something i had never considered until just now and i'm honestly reeling and and it explains the bed in this in this film which is the absolutely bed. insane You're-
1: Emily, you're totally right. It's all down to the bed. That is like a, a kind of a deathbed of their relationship. Oh. It's a bed. Yeah. I mean, it's this ridiculous, what is it? An English Baroque? It's frankly a style of antique I was not even very familiar with. But in any event, it it's sort of, it's way too large for the little nook it's in. And it doesn't seem like they have a very satisfying love life there. Whereas up to this point, perhaps that was the one thing about their relationship that was really clicking along. I don't know. In any event, I, I do really feel like the apartment is indeed designed to make Fox feel very much not at home ever. And there's almost a sort of idea of like, if you have money and you're rich, you kind of deserve it because you know what to do with it. It's this sort of hideous, it's like, you know, so if you don't know, you know, anything about opera, and to your point, Emily, you don't know what to do with your lobster bisque, and the last thing you're supposed to do is dunk pieces of bread in it, you know, like, then do you deserve to have this cash at all? It's almost like there's this moral justification that Ugin has to say like, well, no, this should be mine because I know how to spend it. Um, And then of course, at the end, when he's parted severed ways with Fox and everything is so terrible, he basically turns to his previous boyfriend who's been waiting in the wings all the time and says, oh, we've got to get rid of this furniture. It's just it's hideous. I can't stand being around it anymore. And you don't know whether he always hated it or whether now it just comes with, you know, I don't know, perhaps a little smidge of guilt or something or some overlay that wasn't there before.
2: There's the scene where they're all eating the lobster bisque. And to me, the way rich people eat soup, to me, is like everything, right? Like I, I it, it astounds me. You like take the spoon and you you put it's away from your body right to have the soup and it goes in your mouth there's no slurping that to me was the ultimate the whole scene was like oh yeah okay this guy does not belong he is not rich he cannot eat soup properly that is the ultimate test
1: Yeah, and it's so tragic. Like Fox is left with that sports car, and he thinks, "Well, at least I can sell this and have some money." But no, because the oil crisis is on, and you know, as the auto dealer says, "Well, nobody wants this." Which is unclear, also, whether the auto dealer is really telling the truth or just trying to get it off him for you know a a ridiculous price. So he's really just screwed every which way when it comes to what he's done with, with the money. None of none of the investments that were being made paid off.
0: Except for the one that ought to have done, like as I as I think I mentioned to you guys on email, like the way this film should have ended if it wasn't so like incredibly bleak, the bit of his money that didn't go to rich people things was thirty thousand Deutschmarks marks that he gave to his ex boyfriend who just came out of jail for tax evasion and he needed the money and it was an, a genuine act of generosity. And the way the movie should have ended is that that guy and his thirty thousand dollars or the 30,000 Deutsche Marks, you know, will now be able to sort of take him in and they'll be able to live on that. But that never, like, it's just generally assumed by Faustbinder that no, he's just like absconded with the 30 grand and there's never going to be a scene again. Even though they were very very close and lovers like that was the bit where i'm like really you're gonna just like kill him off from a valium overdose rather than like go back to his lover come on guy well
2: it's not hollywood felix it's not hollywood it's munich in the 70s it's not it's
0: definitely not i want like sometimes sometimes i need some a hollywood ending what can i say yeah
2: you're not satisfied with either ending you're not satisfied with the hollywood ripley ending because ripley gets away with his grift right i mean it's kind of a happy ending even though it ends with murder um, and then the other movie is a non-Hollywood ending, and you don't like that either. So which is it, Felix?
0: It's true. I'm never satisfied.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the ending to Fox and his friends is bleak, very bleak. I mean, I think instead, right, the boyfriend comes down the stairs in the subway and sort of sees his body and says, well, I don't, we can, you know, there's nothing we can do for him now. And that's, true. that's it. <laughs> it is true. It is true.
2: Was it just a bleak time in Germany in the early 1970s that there's two young boys who, like, rifle through um, his pockets when he's, you know, dead on the floor in the subway? Like, that to me, two young boys doing that was super depressing and bleak. Like, it must be hard times, right, if if that's going on in a society or no. I feel like
0: it wasn't that bleak. Like, this is, this is the post-war German miracle, right, with the fast cars and the— and the wealth and the sophistication and you know the uh, the way that like gay men get to live life in a relatively like open and normal way like there's a lot of like i mean that's the one sort of if you want to see something positive in this movie and there's very few things in this movie that are positive it's that right it's the way that like you can have like a gay community that is just out there living normally
2: but they get kicked out of their apartment right and the implication is they They do get get kicked out of the apartment gay and they can't have they can't bring that man up to the hotel room in morocco i mean there's like little flashes of like homophobia and hostility throughout the the movie i thought
0: sure
1: but it's true that i think yeah i mean i think fassbender himself sort of whether you believe it or not, so felt that the homosexuality was almost incidental to the movie. That, that that it was really more about right people people praying each other. Uh, there, there's a lot of
0: money. penises for an incidental homosexuality. Well,
1: I mean, you know, this is right. This is this is the non-Hollywood <laughs> mid-70s European art film, right? There's a there's a terrific scene in a kind of strange mud bath, I guess, in yes. Munich, um, <laughs>
0: where where
1: you know it's it's a it's a gay sauna with a full-on mud bath that people emerge from, um, and then hang out naked at the bar and and have coffee and chat.
2: Yeah, I suppose that is a positive thing. I didn't think of it that way. I was just like, oh, my soup slurping judgments. I was like, oh, Germany in the 70s. All these people were Nazis at some point, I bet. Like, I know, that's wrong to think. They
0: they were all terrible. (laughs) Like, there's not a single sympathetic character in the movie. Fox's sister is just as bad as he is, right? Like, all of the upper-class gay men are terrible. Um, there's no one, even like Freddie in in Ripley, right? Who who has self awareness?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is right to just state the obvious—the sort of irony of the title, right? There no—he has no friends who're looking out after him, right? You know, and the sort of the the gay friends who are more from a working class background that he hangs out with in that one bar are also kind of contemptuous of him and a little bit suspicious of, of what he's up to and this transformation he's made in his life. And, and I think they they can kind of see that it's not going to end well.
2: He had a cool jacket, though.
1: <laughs> he does have a great jacket, <laughs> yeah, which is also taken from him, right, at the very the end. end. Yeah. I think those, yeah. boys, those boys also <laughs> abscond with the jacket. So, you know, he's, he's fully stripped of everything.
0: And actually, like, there's, there's intimidation via furniture and there's also <laughs> intimidation via... Clothes, right? That's the other thing is that Eugen literally strips all of the clothes that he feels comfortable in off him and puts him into like some ridiculous floppy bow tie, which is clearly never going to, he's clearly never going to be comfortable. And, and, And the thing that's frustrating about the movie is the way in which he just puts up with it. And you're like, why are you putting up with this?
1: Yeah. And then when he finally sort of tries to break free is when, right, he's then confronted with the reality of the fact that he's been scammed this whole time. Um, and, you know, he expects he's going to get this money back. And instead they say, oh, no, but you were working for the printing business. And so that was being paid back to you in salary. right? <laughs> it's like, again, the sort of exploitation of the system. I mean, look, you know, it's. I had picked this movie because this, this friend of ours had always said she thought it was like the best depiction of class relations ever put to screen. Right? I'll let you argue about that or debate it or whatever. You know, then I went well, back. What,
0: what do you think?
1: Well, I think, I don't know. I mean, I went back and read this Jay Hoberman piece and he said, look, you know, that yes, but it's, it's, it's well, I don't know if he said yes, but he said, you know, it's not a subtle um, depiction of <laughs> class relations. I and mean, it is definitely not a subtle movie and it, nor is it really meant to be. I mean, it's meant to be sort of, you know, it's it's somewhat melodramatic. It's, you know, Fassbender was obviously very influenced by Douglas Sirk. It's got a lot of, of that in it.
2: Eugen's family in that movie, are they actually truly upper class? That I started wondering about that. Oh, interesting
0: like,
1: question.
2: They own a factory. That to me is not upper class, but maybe I'm misreading it.
0: Right. So as, as a, yeah, as a German, like I, I can try and sort of it's not upper class in the sense of, like, Austrian, like, Viennese high society, you know, of of just, like, swanning around, going to the opera, and, and having that Ripley-like, just living off your wealth-landed gentry kind of thing. Because Germany really was destroyed during the war, and if you had any, you know, money, if you had any kind of old money, it all got destroyed into war with the inflation, Um, and that kind of stuff so if you're going to be rich in post-war germany you are going to work for your money you're going to go into some kind of industry you're going to start a factory you're going to start a company that's that's the way that you build wealth and success it's not by just kind of like being rich and spending
2: those people were gone that's so interesting
1: Super interesting. Felix, I feel like people count on you to break down um, class, not only in England, but now in <laughs> Germany as well. Now yeah, <laughs> in Germany do You could specialize, you could see a specialty of yours.
0: Let's rank these things. Emily, what did you make of these two movies? You were the one who kind of hated Fox and his friends and therefore like steered us into the talented Mr. Ripley. Do you now, having seen them both, think that Ripley is a better movie?
2: Ripley is a better movie because it's more, you know, listeners know that I like to be entertained and Ripley is beautiful, especially the first half of Ripley is just a wonderful romp. It's beautiful. Americano, they're singing in the cafe and Jude Law is gorgeous and it's it's a great movie and it has that creepiness in the beginning that pays off in the end. It's a good movie. I give it, I give it, I give it a nine- they don't make movies like that anymore. And Fox and his friends, actually, I watched it again. I wound up watching it two times, um, and I have to say, like, at the end of it all, I, I enjoyed it. It was a good movie, and and I think my enjoyment uh, was enhanced by watching Ripley because the two play off each other so well. So, and I give Fox and Friends a seven. Also, I think I understand more German than I realized. So that was that was a journey for me. <laughs>
0: I will say, Fox and his friends was was frustrating to me. I I felt that there should have been more humanity. I think, like I think, to Jared's point, that Fassbinder was so hell bent on making this allegory about class relations that he forgot to imbue any of his characters with any actual humanity or three dimensionality, and they it, they just became these kind of characters who came on and and represented the you know the lumpen proletariat or whatever and you're like yeah you can do better than that i will say i will ultimately give that one i think a b and ripley yeah i'll give it like a b plus i think but you're right they don't make movies like that anymore like it's impossible that they're kind of high budget you know Middle brow Oscar bait kind of thing. Like, what happened to that? I
2: love the middle brow. <laughs> 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 the
1: All high, right, John. the high toned middle brow. Uh, yeah, I, you know, as much as I would love to start a fight in our last minutes and create some controversy, I'm I'm basically in agreement with you both. I mean, I I, I think you know, it's funny when I pulled up Mr. Ripley and I saw it was over two hours. I thought no movie needs to be over two hours um, at this, age. and yet. There were maybe a few moments one could have trimmed back, but it, so just so entertaining. And really, again, I think one of these instances where you take source material and do your own thing with it and do it really brilliantly with with maybe a few plot problems here and there. but So I'd say A-. And Fox and his friends, it's interesting. I mean, the one thing I would say is that out of all of the characters in these two movies, I, I felt for Fox more than anybody else. So in that sense, you know, and and, you know, obviously... But you couldn't
0: identify with him. But right? I you
2: couldn't,
1: kind of, because I identified with him as somebody who, and this is sort of how you're supposed to feel about Ripley as well. I guess is is sort of in this world that is so foreign to him, and of course with Ripley, he's able to yeah to figure it out quick and then and use it to his advantage, and then Fox just keeps getting more and more lost, up to the point where even the things that he sort of thought he knew he no longer knows how to operate. I mean, there's this really horrible, tragic scene at the end where these two American soldiers in the bar, he's flirting with them, they're flirting with him, and then they basically, if I have it right, I think ask him like, well, you know, like you know, basically like how much will you pay us to have sex with us? And it's like, no, 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 no. That's not how it's supposed to work. <laughs> like they, were, you know, and so everything has been sort of taken from him and his understanding of the world and I and I found that um yeah, pretty pretty affecting. Uh, even though, of course, it's it's over the top bleak. Anyway, they're a fun pairing. You've sort of got you know the sun of Southern Italy, and then um, the subterranean subway station of mid seventies <laughs> Munich. Um, so you know you can kind of toggle between these between these milieux. Plus the mud bath.
0: Plus the mud bath. Jared, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been awesome having you.
1: It was great to uh, be with both of you.
0: And yeah thanks and we'll be back on saturday with a normal slate money for the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need plus